Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are concluding our series of sermons on the letters from the Lord to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Sent by the Lord, by the Apostle John in the latter part of the first century to a group of representative churches who possessed largely the characteristics typical of all the churches of Christ throughout the age. This one, the letter to Laodicea, is the last of the seven. And if you had a map of that part of the earth, you would notice that the seven churches form a sort of oval or elliptical circle, and that the path taken, if one were to take these letters from Ephesus to Laodicea, would be in a perfect order, from Ephesus up toward the north to the next, and all the way around and back down to Laodicea, forming the circle. And this is the church located in the city at the end of the circuit that sort of chain that was located just out of Phrygia in Asia Minor. Now, all these letters represent a comprehensive picture of the churches of Christ in any given period of time in this era. The Lord noticed in all the churches some good qualities which he praises. There was in some doctrinal soundness, In others, faithfulness and discipline. In others, abounding of Christian service. Some possessed a fullness of warm, spiritual life, love, hope, and confidence. Others were noted for their patience in suffering and persecution. But some of the churches had some bad qualities, which the Lord hates and which he demands to be forsaken. Some were cold in their life. Some lacked zeal. Some had lost their love. Some were lax in their discipline. Others had a tendency to false mysticism. And the Lord rebukes them all. But perhaps there is no more alarming and negative and scathing word and more terrifying rebuke than the one we shall see tonight given by Christ to the church in Laodicea. Please follow as I read beginning with verse 14 of chapter 3 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth because you say, 
I am rich and have gotten riches and have need of nothing and know not that you are the wretched one and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness be not made manifest. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. As many as I love, I reprove and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He that overcomes, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please again join me as we pray together. Lord, we would pray that even as we have read these words from your holy book, that your spirit would attend them to the consciences of your people, that sinners in our midst may be pricked with the truth, that Christ may be made known, even tonight as he addresses us. And Lord, whatever words here would be pertinent and appropriate to this church, we pray you'd help us hear them. Lord, we have no hope if you shut our ears and our hearts to the truth. Where we're wrong, we need you to correct us. O Lord, do reprove and chasten us and show us where we need to put things right and give us the grace to be zealous and repent. Make us now, O Lord, to hear your word with ready and obedient hearts and give grace to the one that preaches that he may do it acceptably honorably, clearly, and with the very power and help of your Spirit. Give this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have divided the sermon tonight into five sections or five parts. They are these. The first thing we're going to consider in this letter is Christ's sobering self-disclosure to the church in Laodicea. Second, we're going to notice his stunning critical analysis of the church in Laodicea. Third, his promising counsel to the church. Fourth, his reassuring motive. And fifth, his gracious overture. The Lord has a word for this church located in the near the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor, a church that was known for its famous medical school, which produced all kinds of good medicine, one of the most popular being a particular kind of powder from a stone that was uh, frequently found in the region, the powder of which was used to anoint eyes and to rub them as an ointment and to heal certain weaknesses of eyes. It was also an area known for its precious, glossy, black, 
sheep's wool, from which they made some very popular and expensive woolen clothing, black wool, a very rare thing not existing anymore in the world, but which made Laodicea and her surrounding regions very famous. There was a large Jewish population in this center. It was a manufacturing center, creating things like upper garments and marketing them throughout the known world, famous for its tunics, one species of which was bought and loved and cherished by all the well-to-do people in the empire if they could get one. This was a city that was a center of banking and monetary exchange, And it was typical of a Greco-Asiatic population, racially mixed, cosmopolitan in spirit, in which the spirit of compromise was paramount. One world community. All of us working together for the same common ends, the new humanity. No distinctions were were emphasized, but standardized living was the order of the day. The kids were sent to the same kinds of schools. The people were taught the same kinds of philosophies. And everything was attempted to be leveled off so that nobody would stand up and rock the boat. That was Laodicea. A well-to-do, famous, productive, rich, healthy bunch of people. And the church finds itself in the midst But the Lord Jesus has a word for this church. He has not forgotten his church in Laodicea, and he addresses them. First of all, consider with me Christ's sobering self-disclosure to the church. Notice in verse 14b, he says, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The Amen is speaking to the church in Laodicea, the faithful and true witness. Let us consider that designation in the first place. Whatever others may say or think of them, whatever they may say or think of themselves in Laodicea, Christ possesses, by virtue of his glorious identity as the God of truth, the only utterly reliable view and trustworthy testimony of them or of any other thing. His evaluation, however shocking or disillusioning to them, will be the correct one. He is the faithful and true witness. His testimony regarding Laodicea, based upon his infallible observation will stand up in the court of divine justice. None will be able to refute his word. It will win the day, and it will carry the jury. He is the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Now, Laodicea has formed a definite opinion of itself. This church has perhaps heard and heeded the flattery of some of the worldlings who have found her life and teaching compatible with their sins. Perhaps she has accepted the judgment of false prophets, shallow professors of Christianity, or more probably, she has reviewed her status by placing the standard of carnal reasoning alongside her condition and her achievements 
and has concluded what any rational man of the world would conclude. She's rich. She's increased with goods. She has need of nothing. But she has not asked counsel of the Lord. She has forgotten to seek his view. She has neglected his reasoning and the standard by which the judge by which he judges the churches. Wherever she has collected the basis of her conclusion about herself, she has omitted the one source of analysis which is completely trustworthy. The Amen, the faithful witness of the churches. You see, the Lord is calling himself the one who alone knows the true condition of the church and whose evaluation is the only one that will stand the test of God's judgment. He's the one who, when he speaks, speaks the truth. He's the one who, when he bears testimony, is utterly infallible in his testimony. He cannot err. When he takes the witness stand against your soul, you will not be able to refute it. There is no defense attorney in the universe who will be able to get you off if the Lord prosecutes you and claims you are guilty. If Jesus Christ is against you tonight, and if he has a case against you, and if he occupies the place of the prosecuting witness and attorney, the state's chief witness, as it were, and the prosecution brings him to the witness stand, when he speaks, the judge and the jury will render his speech to be true. We'll believe him, and you are cooked. That's what he means by being the faithful and the true witness. You see, there's a need for them to hear him introduce himself in this way. It's a shocking exposure of himself. It's a stunning self-disclosure. Why does he introduce himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness to this church? Because they have got it all backwards. Their judgment is wrong. Their self-analysis is incorrect. They think they're rich. He says they're not. They think they have need of nothing. He says they have need of everything. And so he introduces himself and makes it clear at the outset, whatever else you think, I'm the one that whatever I say is right. What I'm about to say to you about your condition, you best believe it because of what I am and who I am. But that's not all Christ says about himself. He further discloses himself to them by calling himself the beginning of, of the creation of God. Now I confess to you. The first time I read this text. I thought what in the world. Is that doing there. As has been my experience. In almost all these seven letters. When I first read them. It's very difficult for me to figure out. What in the world we're talking about. Why, why are all these words. And this tendency is to think. They can't mean much. And as we suggested earlier. Uh, I believe it was last week. We tend to just pass over those little dark sayings, these little epithets, and say, well, I, I don't know what that means anyway. But as we have learned in our study of these seven letters, the Lord never asserts anything about himself that does not p- apply particularly and pertinently to the church that he's addressing. Every one of these self-disclosures and self-designations has a particular thing to say to that church in its peculiar need. And no different in this case. He is saying, calling himself the beginning of the creation of God because they need to recognize the source of their existence and their sustenance. Here's a church that has need of nothing. Here's a church that is increased with goods, rich, well-clothed, prospering, 
a good, successful church. And who is it that addresses them? The one without whom nothing that was made was made. The beginning of the creation of God. Later in the book of Revelation, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Words attributable only to God. The Lord Jesus Christ is said in the scripture to be the creator of the world. In Colossians 1.18, by him all things consist and hold together. In Revelation chapter 21, again, he is seen as the first and the last of everything that is. You see, it's from Christ that all creation receives its existence and sustenance. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him all things consist. Your body parts are sticking together because of Christ. The atoms cling to each other because of Christ. Literally, all things consist by him. Literally means that all the elementary parts of the universe hold together by Christ. If he ever takes his hand off, I recognize that to believe that, you must have some faith. But the Bible says, doesn't it, that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. You can't understand that any other way. There is no textbook in the world that can make you understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The Bible is the only book that can explain that and the only way that that makes sense is when your heart is in tune with the truth and you believe it. Brethren, it is a fruitless adventure for us to attempt to get some science books that are distinctly Christian as to origin so as to convince scientists that God made the worlds. That is not the way to convince men that God made the worlds. It is not our job to try to make it make sense to scientists. There are things we can do with science. We can certainly dismantle many of their theories with good science. We can certainly make fools of those who are fools. But we cannot convince them that God made the world. That's known and understood by faith. But the Bible says that by Jesus Christ, everything was made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and not anything that was made was made without Him. That means the mark and the stamp of the handiwork of Jesus Christ is on every piece of creation there is. Well, what does that assume? Well, if He's the beginning of the whole creation... We would think that means that Laodicea has some dependence upon him. Would we not? Do you want to have things? You'll not get them without Christ granting them because they all rest in his hands. Give us this day our daily bread. We are taught to pray. Why? Because God is the one that gives such things. But somebody said, I got you, Pastor. I haven't asked for all this stuff. I never had to ask God. I got it anyway. I've never prayed. Maybe once in a while. But generally speaking, I don't ask for my daily bread. And I've got just as much bread than Christians. In fact, I've got more bread than Christians. So, 
That proves it, does it not? That we do not need to ask God that the Lord is not the source of good things. You Christians have made up a religion because you're insecure, you're ignorant, you couldn't cut it in society, so you've hunkered yourselves together in this little group of Christians over here for security and mutual encouragement. You've pulled out of the world because you can't face reality. You can't stand up to the big issues, so you're playing religion over in the corner. We feel sorry for you poor people. We'd like to free you from your superstitions. We'd like to get you up in the big world so you could stand on your own feet as the uh, humanists of our day would love to rid us of this dependence on deity so man could, as they say, come of age and free himself from the shackles of the old myths and the old dependencies on superstitions. You see, that doesn't answer the question, though. The fact that you got up this morning and ate bread and the fact that you've got plenty and didn't ask God for it doesn't prove it's not God that gave it. It proves you're not thankful to God who gave it. It proves you have not glorified God who gave it. It proves that God's word is true when he said, though he came into the world that he had made, they didn't receive him. It proves that God's word is true, that men did not believe God, though they saw the evidence of his creation and power. They knew him. They didn't want to know him. And so they didn't give him glory, and they weren't thankful. And it proves that God's word is true, that his wrath rests upon you, and you stand in a predicament that I would not want to be in. You're under the judgment of God. You see, what it proves is that the Lord is gracious and kind, even to the unholy and the unthankful. It doesn't prove he's not the source of all you have. It proves that you're not appreciative of all you have. It proves that God is kind to his enemies. It glorifies his goodness. It doesn't magnify his non-existence. You're a fool if you think that the reason you have things is because you got them yourself and you would have gotten them whether you were a Christian or not. God gave them. Christ is to be glorified for giving them. Your refusal to honor Him and thank Him is nothing more than your desperate plea to get rid of His existence and it's to your own detriment. Laodicea thought she had need of nothing. But she had forgotten from whom all true riches come. Here is the church of Christ forgetting Christ. That's hard to imagine if we didn't live in America. It would be astonishing to think of that in the first century. A church built by Christ, forgetting Christ. It's not astonishing to me. That doesn't shock me. Why doesn't that shock me? Because I've grown up in a culture filled with churches that have forgotten Christ. And I'm not just talking about Rome. I'm talking about Baptists. Baptists around this country who have built great big monuments to men's ingenuity, who have full orchestras and choirs and praise the voices and the skills of men, and who think that they got all they got by their own doing and their own skill, who think their programs and their organizations have been the secret behind their success, who travel around the country giving lectures on how you too can have the biggest church in your town. How you too can build a super Sunday school. How you too can get more members than anybody else. They have techniques. They have gimmicks. They know how to do it. And brethren, they're good at it. They can do it. I've watched them do it. And so they say, we are rich. We have need of nothing. 
I wish you could read some of the publications I read from certain seminaries and certain churches and certain denominational entities and hear the bragging and the boasting and the vanity. All they can speak of is what they've accomplished and how their alumni are the sharpest in the world and how their endowments lead the league and how everything that they do and everything they touch turns to gold. They reek with vanity. It nauseates the stomach of a sensitive Christian to read such literature in the name of Christ. I went to one such school one time as a, a member of an alumni group who were being asked to help gain uh, some uh, endowment money. And I sat in a conference for two days as they spieled out before us all of their accomplishments and boasted among us and paraded the faculty and paraded the staff before us to report this aspect of the seminary and this aspect of the seminary and how much we've accomplished since I've been here and how much we've accomplished during my tenure and how much we've accomplished since we instituted this plan, this program, and how we need the money to support further. And I sat for two days and never heard a man say anything that referred remotely to the grace of God, the goodness of God, the help of God, the existence of God. Never heard a prayer. Never had a Bible verse read. Never had a man say, I don't know how God did it, but he's been gracious to us. No such thing. Not even a glimmer. It never occurred to them. They utterly had forgotten the source of everything they had. You see, we're not denying that the Lord does give all those riches to the wicked. He does. We're not saying that if you don't ask, you'll never get anything. The whole world is filled with people that have plenty and never asked. We're saying that the fact that they have it without asking doesn't mean it's not Christ that gave it. He's the source of all creation. (coughs) Laodicea saw herself rich in herself, in need of nothing, forgetting the beginning of the creation of God, forgetting that if all creation owes its origin and continuance and sustenance to the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more do our little trifles owe themselves to him? So we see Christ's further disclosure of his glorious self as a result of this smug, complacent, self-sufficient evaluation of the Laodiceans. The Lord has said, I am the Amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm the beginning and end of all of God's creation. But that's not all. Because they, in the light of who he is, have taken the posture that they've taken. He, in a graphically descriptive fashion, draws attention to his present posture With regard to this church, verse 16, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. The word spew literally means vomit. This is from a word in the original that means throw up. The Lord is saying, I'm sick at my stomach over you. He's saying, you make me sick. You nauseate me. 
I've put that under the heading of the self-disclosure of the Lord. A rather stunning self-disclosure. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. And he's sick at his stomach. This divine nausea is brought about by his faithful and true consideration of the actual condition of the church. How shocking this must have been to the smug, complacent, self-congratulatory band of professed disciples. No doubt she was all excited about the contents of this epistle. Imagine the member's reaction when news of the epistle arrived in Laodicea. There's a letter here from Jesus. John sent it. We're going to gather the Lord's Day and it's going to be read. The word spread. Everybody's excited. Now they know that the whole book has been sent from Ephesus all the way around the circle. And God has saved them for last. And they come to church all excited. Surely the Lord has noticed our accomplishments. Our growing budget. Our large membership. Our proud standing in the community. Our pastor is a Rotarian, a member of the Lions Club. Everybody speaks well of him. He's been asked to pray at virtually every representative and senate meeting. He's been asked to lead the invocations at all sorts of civic. In fact, he's going to lead the procession in the Hebrew Christian Dialogue Seminar that's coming up in a couple of weeks. The Roman Catholics like him. The Jews like him. The Christians like him. And I understand he's going to take a trip and have a dialogue with one of the Muslim representatives. We're so proud of our pastor. Surely the Lord is. He's got us for last. He's saving the best for last. He's going to commend us, no doubt, for our achievements. Much the way denominations give out ribbons and plaques and trophies and citations to their most productive churches. I grew up in churches that lived to get a little piece of paper that they could put up on the wall that said, you have achieved a standard Sunday school. They had, they had goals that if you could get a certain percentage of attendance regularly in Sunday school, you get this at the end of the year from the denomination. And some churches would have their walls lined with these little things. They would implant them, spend money on them. Now, they didn't have to come to Sunday school, just get them enrolled. Well, the Lord's coming. To, maybe he'll have a trophy that he's going to send. The fact that we're the richest church in the region of Asia, Asia Minor, surely has caught his eye. This is what the Lord wants to do. He wants to build churches that make a difference. Churches that don't offend too much. Churches that really have left open the door of evangelism because they've not turned anybody away. Churches that people like. Churches people feel comfortable in. Warm, friendly churches that don't say quite too much. Say just enough to titillate the interest but not enough to drive them away. We don't say it all because they might lose. We're waiting for the time when we can finally tell them the truth. That kind of spirit. The Lord likes the way we've approached things. I remember as they got there and listened to the, the epistle from John, the book of Revelation, they had been listening while the reader of the scripture had read the opening section of the book. Look back in chapter 1, verse 4. Here are these people in Laodicea now sitting in their chairs, their pews, their bean bags or whatever. Verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. 
So the seven churches, that includes us. Perhaps a few inward jitters rippled through the congregation when the great description of their glorious Redeemer was cited in the last part of this first chapter. Maybe they began to grow a bit uncomfortable as he displayed his glory and the burning of his eyes and the brazen feet. Those are not the kinds of images you want to think about if there's a little bit of bother in your conscience. Perhaps a bit of perplexity regarding the mention in chapter 1 verse 9 of the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance in Jesus. What could he be referring to here? I, John, verse 9, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation of Jesus. What is that one? That's an interesting comment. That the, well, that probably doesn't apply to Laodicea. I don't know what persecution and perseverance means. That, they might have passed over that a bit confused as to how that related to them. No wonder. It didn't relate to them. They were having no trouble. They were in no need of enduring anything. Everything being as secure and pleasant as it was for them. Surely some condescending amens may have come out of them at the listing of the problems of the other churches, mingled maybe by a concern as to why the poor Smyrna church, this little insignificant church, seems to be so appreciated by Christ. And this small, weak Philadelphian group so loved by him, that might have caused a bit of stirring. That's interesting that the Lord would value so highly these little churches that haven't done much, have not much effect, don't have much influence. Maybe they had a few moments of concern, but imagine their chagrin when they find that Christ has not saved them for last because they're his favorites. No, no. When he turns to them from his beloved Philadelphia, he says, Not I'm proud of you, but you make me sick. And then he tells them why they make him sick. And that brings us to the second heading of our message, our Lord's stunning critical analysis of the Laodicean church. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3 and verse 17, he describes them in two ways. First, in verse 15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have gotten riches and have need of nothing and know not that you are wretched, the wretched one, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. First, he describes them as being lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Then he describes them as being the wretched one, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this word lukewarm is an interesting word. You might think what he's saying is that You folks are neither hot with zeal for the Lord, nor are you ice cold and dead as a doornail. I wish you were either really for me or really against me. But you're sort of in between, and so you make me sick. That's not what he's saying. The Lord does not wish anybody to be really against him. The word cold here, in my view, is not a reference to total opposition and deadness. That's not the issue. It's interesting that 
near Laodicea, there were some noted hot springs. There also were some springs of very cold, fresh water. They were known to be very medicinal and helpful. The Lord, I believe, is referring here to the imagery of water or anything that might be drunk and its value and usefulness and taste and its receptivity to the palate. You all know that warm water is what you give somebody if you want them to throw up. You don't ask for a warm cup of coffee. You don't ask for a glass of warm water. You want cold water or some hot. You want hot tea, hot water, or cold tea, cold water. You don't want lukewarm anything to drink. Why? Because it makes you sick. You want to throw it up out of your mouth. Most of us, when we get it in our mouth, right out. Don't want that. I think that's the imagery. I don't think we should fall prey to the surface assumption that he's referring to coldness spiritually versus hotness spiritually. I don't think that's the issue here. He's not wishing they were utterly cold spiritually. You see, Ephesus had lost their first ardor and zeal in their affections for Christ. He's not referring to coldness of zeal, but rather to their acceptability to Christ as to their usefulness for his purposes. You see, the Lord Jesus is not always looking for the same things in the church that we look for. We think size. He thinks sanctification. We think big budgets. He thinks big hearts. We think programs. He thinks prayer. In Laodicea, there were known to be two kinds of springs, hot and cold. You want one or you want the other. You don't want something in between. So the Lord is comparing these people with this nauseating, lukewarm stuff that's useful for nothing except to induce vomiting. This church was not pleasing, not acceptable, not useful to Christ. They imagined themselves to be perfectly suited to his service. He would have no part of them as such. He doesn't want our strengths. He wants our availability to his strengths. This is why he so frequently strips and saps us of our strengths. So we'll look to him. The Lord does not want us to bring him all of our money and talents and say, now you can use us. We have the resources. The Lord is utterly sick at such a sound coming from a Christian or a church. The Lord does not want us to pray because somehow now we think we've got to put to a position that we can be useful. He doesn't want any aspect of our confidence before him to be rooted in ourselves. He wants that to be utterly devoid in our prayer. He doesn't want us to have any thought that we have anything to offer him. Lord, here's my talent. Here's my money. Here's my ability. I now gladly give it to you because I'm sure you could use it. No, he doesn't need it. He's the one that gave it to you. He already has it. He had it before you had it. And he's got a lot more than you've got. He can get rid of you in a moment and replace you in a moment. I live with the discipline of that thought sitting over my head. There's not two days that go by and I'm not reminded that I am 
dispensable, replaceable. The Lord doesn't want our strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Here's a church that's got it upside down. Glorying in their strength. Rich, increased in goods, having need of nothing. Yet the Lord knows the truth and he speaks it. You are wretched. You are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Examine that second description for me, with me. Wretched. This word is the same word used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, Wretched man that I am. He looks at himself in Romans 7 and he says, I'm utterly useless and pitiful in the sight of God. I'm a vile worm. I'm worthless. I'm nothing. Wretched. Paul was nauseating to himself, as every sensitive Christian is. When you know the true condition of your heart, the deeper you know it, the more you know it, the less you're impressed with yourself. Brethren, it's not a mark, as we've said so often, it's not a mark of maturity that the Christian gets to a place he's no longer sick of himself. It's just the opposite. The more mature you get in the faith, the less impressed and enamored with yourself you'll be. Don't set as your goal to get to a place that you can look in the mirror, smile, and say, you're doing all right, buddy. Do not let Robert Schuller's philosophy be the goal of your life. Self-esteem. Don't set your life up for the day when you no longer will find any need or weakness in yourself. And then you can take to the Lord this equipped creature who is now worth something. My dear friend, you ain't never going to be in yourself worth anything to Christ. In his eyes, you are little more than a pile of dust. The little more is simply that he's organized you into a body. And he's breathed into your soul. And you may say, no, wait, Pastor. Man is created in the image of God. Well, it's crucial to remember the word created in that sentence. Yes, you're in the image of God. because God put you that way. And God knows how to make you into the image of a devil. You be careful. Don't puff yourself up. Wretched. But you see, this church doesn't know that it's wretched. The same word is describing it, but the difference between Paul in Romans 7 and the Laodiceans, they don't think they're wretched. They have the opposite view. It would never occur to them that they're wretched. Wretched? They're like those in the modern church that would take the terms worm as I out of the hymn and change it to such a sinner as I. We'll grant that, they say. But a worm? Nobody's going to call me a worm. I can't sing those words. I've heard him say it. I can never sing that about myself. I'm better than a worm. No, you're worse than a worm. You had, you knew better. You're crawling around in the slime and the filth and eating the dirt that you've been eating. Is no, you have no excuse for what you do. Both that sac- sacred head for such a worm as I needs to remain in the hymn. I'd like to put it back into the hymns of all those that sing it and hate it. Just so they'd have one little reminder in poetry once in a while of what they really are in the sight of God. 
You're not going to do a favor, brethren, to those who are puffed up in their self-righteousness by letting them get by with it very long. Find a way to tell them what they are. What they'll do is ostracize you from their friendship and you will be free of them. Wretched. But then he says miserable. And that word means an object of pity. Can you imagine what that did to those people? You pitiful people. An object of pity? Laodicea? How dare you? How dare him? He did. You're an object of pity. I feel sorry for you. You're a miserable bunch. There's nothing they could see about themselves that looked miserable. They couldn't imagine. They were distinct. They were dignified. They could, they could circulate in the better uh, social gatherings. These folks were probably people invited to the better parties at the medical school. They probably could. They were connoisseurs of the best wines. They were probably all on the mailing list of the Smithsonian. These people were among that echelon of folks that you just don't talk down to, baby, because we ain't down below you. We're above you. In fact, they wouldn't like that language I just used. I want you to know that sometimes I use that kind of language purposely just to aggravate the arrogant and the proud and the self-pure, just to bring them down a bit, to make them understand that preaching is not dependent on that kind of false piety. You're to be pitied. Oh, I know churches today, brethren, that if those words came to them, they would not understand what they meant. What could Jesus possibly mean by pitying us? They walk around with their chests out and their heads high and their sparkling new suits shining in the sun of their own reflection. Jesus looks at such a thing and says you're miserable. And he says you're poor. You possess none of the spiritually commendable qualities that little Smyrna and little Philadelphia have. You're poor. You think you have need of nothing. You're poor. Then he says you're blind. What's so terrible is they can't see their poverty. They think they're rich. If that's not blind, I don't know what is. Doesn't the Lord say that blessed are the poor in spirit? What does that mean? He doesn't mean blessed are those that ain't got no spirituality. He means blessed are those that know they don't have any spirituality. Blessed are those whose spirits are marked by a sense of personal poverty, dependence, and need. Who understand all their days that if the Lord isn't gracious, they're useless and they have nothing. They live their lives as suppliants before God, starting their day saying, Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. They live their days before a holy and hallowed God, knowing that His will is best, that His name is glorious, and that He is the key to their happiness. The poor in spirit. Not these people. They're blind. They think they're rich. They're not. And then he says, you're naked. So these people were probably well clothed. They lived in a very 
high rent district of clothing manufacturers. I'm sure the people in this church, the picture is that they had the best. The Lord looks at that and sees nakedness. But you know what he means. He means they have no cover for their sin or shame. He's examined them. They're guilty. And they have nothing to cover it with. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. They come dancing out of the trees with fig leaves sewn together. And the Lord sees right through them. He, they haven't hidden their shame. It doesn't do the trick. It didn't work. You're still guilty and defiled. Only the Lord knows how to clothe people and cover their shame. Laodicea has not sought his, his covering. They've supplied their own. You see, the eye of Christ, the amen, sees through all of our efforts to cover over our guilt and sin. There's some of you sitting here tonight who have become virtual experts at covering your sins. You live your life as a sin coverer. The problem is it hasn't made a, a it hasn't made a dent in God's view of you. He doesn't even see the stuff you've covered yourselves with. All he sees is your shame and your guilt, your nakedness. Well, his description is opposite theirs. They have need of nothing. He says they have need of everything. They think they're rich. He says they're poor. They're poor. They're not poor in spirit. They're pitiful, but they're not meek. They're blind because they're not pure in heart, because the pure in heart see God. They are naked, unclothed by the righteousness of Christ. Brethren, the greatest enemy to your salvation is self-righteousness. Those who are most devoid of God's righteousness the most unclad by the righteousness of Christ are often the last ones aware of their nakedness. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as other men. And the old publican comes in after him and cannot even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's so ashamed. He can hardly get his prayers out. All about all he can do is beat his breast and say, Have mercy on me. A sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went away justified. Oh, how God loves the poor sinner. Don't you understand it yet? Don't you see it? All God is waiting for is for you to lay yourself out before him the way he already knows you are. A poor, naked sinner. He loves those kind of people. He loves a helpless guy. He loves a man that lays himself out and says, Lord, I've tried and I can't do anything. I've tried to change. I can't change. I'm fighting against everything in my nature. Lord, look at me. Apparently, I was brought forth in iniquity. Everything about my nature is steeped in sin. Lord, my mouth, I can't keep it shut. My temper, I can't keep it in. My pride, I can't keep it down. My lust, I can't keep them in check. Lord God, I'm a vile, wretched creature. I'm nothing. Have mercy on me. Those are the ones God loves to hear pray. The only thing that will keep you from the mercy of God is your unwillingness to see your dependence on it. Some of you think that there's some way that you're going to get around this and somehow, someday, God's going to make all of us know that you really weren't as bad as we said you were. As bad as he said you were. As bad as you are. 
He's not going to do it that way. God is never going to relent from his judgment that you are wretch and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. That's going to stand over your head till, till the last judgment day unless you come and confess it yourself as an utterly dependent soul. But God loves the poor sinner. He abhors the self-sufficient. I want you to know something. One of the secrets to a good counseling ministry is a pastor who understands that principle among his people. Because he's the pastor who doesn't consign them to hell every time they confide in him the wretched stuff in their souls. He's the pastor that doesn't say, I'm sorry, that's such a bad... I wasn't prepared to hear that. God can't deal with that. I am most delighted when somebody comes to his pastor. I'm not father confessor. But when somebody comes and says, Pastor, I'm battling with stuff. I can't get a grip on it. I can't help it. I'm a bad, wicked, sinful, ungodly person. Lord, what am I going to do? Pastor, give me counsel. People who have nothing to offer, who don't come to the study covering up their sins, saying, oh, I've been praying a lot recently, and then I probe a little more, and I say, well, when have you prayed? What have you prayed? Uh, people that come say, Pastor, I'm a washout. I have real confidence and hope in those people because I know God. I've been to him that way enough times to know that that's the kind of prayer he loves to hear. Now, I'm not saying that you say, you know, is that the key? So the more miserable I make myself and the worse I act and the more grace I'm going to get, that's what the Scripture nails clean in Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin that grace will abound? God forbid. But I'm talking to you who've tried everything you can try and you're still miserable. You play church. Maybe you go to a nice upstanding church, but you don't know God. Maybe you've got your religion in order, but you're a stranger to grace. Maybe you're a friend of the best religionist in the culture, but you don't know what it means to be forgiven of your sins. If you did, you'd be happy. If you did, you'd be here when, with us, singing with us every Sunday, two times on Sunday. If you did, you'd recognize what we preach is true. You'd know it. We know it. I'm not lying to you. If you had known the forgiveness of sins, it wouldn't take very long to know that what's preached here is biblical truth. You wouldn't have to spend too many hours with members of our church to find out that these are people that are real. That makes it all the more nauseating and shameful for a church member to act like that he's no different from the rest and has no heart for what we do here. I tell you, God loves a poor, wretched sinner. But you see, the Lord doesn't stop there. Unlike the way we often deal with our children, with sharp, irritated rebukes, unjoined to directions and encouragements for change and a promise to help, the Lord stands not only rebuking, but inviting. In the third place, notice his promising counsel. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you, buy of me gold tried in the fire, white raiment, eye salve to anoint your eyes, 
What is he saying to them? Well, the word buy is an interesting word. Some have said, well, that means that you go with your good works and you purchase God's grace. Rubbish. This is not an offer of a fair exchange where you bring enough money and God will give you what you have to earn. We have no money. Why does he use the term buy? Well, turn back with me. I'm sure some of you thought of it. Isaiah chapter 55. The great gospel invitation in the Old Testament. Which, by the way, blows to smithereens the theory that in the Old Testament people were saved by works. Nobody's ever been saved by anything but grace. Isaiah chapter 55 starts in verse 1 by saying, Ho, everyone that is thirsty, come to the waters. And he that has no money, come and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me. He's saying, get your ear cleared out. Sit on the edge of your seat. Pay attention and listen to what I'm telling you. Wake up out of your stupor. Don't you understand? You're naked and blind and poor. You need help. You need what I have to give. Get with it. Buy what you need. Some of you sit under my voice and you're perishing. Your soul is choking to death. And you sit here going to sleep while I'm telling you how to save yourself. What a wretch you are. How pitiful it is to see a man drowning and not even willing to ask for help. I'm surrounded by people like that in this culture. When I was a boy, I didn't know it was like that. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But I've grown up and I live in the midst of a people who are drowning and don't even mind choking on the water. They actually want more of the stuff that's choking them off. Here's the Lord. Why do you spend money for that which isn't bread? Why do you labor for that which cannot satisfy? Hearken diligent to me. And eat you that which is good. Let your soul delight itself with fatness. That's what he's saying to the Laodiceans. Come buy of me. You see, they don't have money. And he's not offering for a medium of a fair exchange. He's simply inviting them to procure from the plentiful stock of his supply all they need. The need to buy is paramount. She has none of the things she needs. She needs clothing. She needs no ointment for her eyes. She needs riches. She has none of it, though she thinks she has it all. And as long as she thinks she has it, she'll not buy it. She's not in the market. The Lord is holding out in outstretched arms and offering plenty. And she's not interested. Oh, I wish I could get out there into some of your little brains and I shake the cobwebs and the foolishness out of them and make you understand that the stuff for which you're spending your life is taking you to hell is not satisfying. Don't you know you're not satisfied? I don't even need to tell you that. All I'm doing is trying to tell you why. 
Would you like to know why you're not satisfied? Why all this getting has got you nothing? You want me to tell you? Will you let Christ tell you? You are not rich. You are not clothed. You are poor and miserable and wretched in the eyes of God. Your little soul is emaciated and sickly. But the Lord doesn't just leave it there. He says, buy of me. You don't need money. Just come and get it. Notice it's buy of me. She doesn't have any of these things, but Christ does. He's rich. We need what he has. And we're going to have to get it from him if we get it. But he says, buy gold that's tried. Not the perishable stuff, but eternal riches. White raiment. I think there may be a contrast here between the black wool that they loved in Laodicea. White raiment. Not like the perishable, moth-eaten, black, glossy wool famous there, but heavenly righteousness. Clothed with the robe of Christ's imputed righteousness. No longer needing one ounce of my own. No longer depending on one ounce of my own. No longer attempting to get one ounce of my own. Utterly satisfied with the perfect righteousness cloaking me from Christ. Given to me by Christ. I salve. Interesting that in Laodicea they had this wonderful medicinal salve, And the Lord says, you people need salve, all right. You need spiritual eyesight. You're blind. You have the wrong riches, the wrong clothes, the wrong medicine. I have plenty of what you need. Buy of me. I'll disperse it freely, liberally. Please recognize your destitution. Run to me and procure what you need. But quickly in the next place, notice his reassuring motive. Just very briefly, he says in verse 19... Everyone I love, I rebuke and chasten, or reprove and chasten. I don't think the Lord is here so much contemplating the entire church at Laodicea, but some of the individuals in it. As many as I love. And he may be speaking of the whole church, but there is some indication that he's aware that, by and large, this church is done for. But there are some in the church that will hear there's some that are about, they're, they're willing to recognize their problem. And he's saying, as many as I love, I reprove and chasten. He will vomit out the church as a whole, but some are salvageable. This rebuke and this chastening will have effect on them. They've been almost overcome by the toxic fumes of the church's pollution. But the word of Christ's chastening will awaken them and rescue them. His motive, he loves them. Why does he give them such a scathing reproof? Because he loves them. Oh, dread the day that God will ever quit pricking your conscience. Oh, rue the day that God ever ceased to speak to me to my discomfort. Do not pray that God will make you comfortable until you got all your sin rid of. Don't ever ask God to make you totally, perfectly happy till all your sin's gone. So one good, it's a good thing about heaven. You can't have it the way it is until all your sin's gone. It's one of the reasons God's arranged it this way. His motive is love. His aim is what all chastening is aimed at, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
If there's no rebuke, there's no love. If the Lord doesn't love you, He won't chasten you. If nobody's bothering your soul, it's not because God's satisfied with you and loves you. That's a fearful thing. Be content, be comforted, Christians, that God bothers your soul. One of the most comforting things for the believer's life is the chastening rod of God. It's a reassuring thing to know that He's my Father, has got His eye on me, and doesn't want me to ruin my life. And He keeps on chasing me down and catching me in my sin and rebuking me for it. Thanks be to God for some of you that He sent you a preacher to tell you things in your Bible that you read and didn't see. And thanks be to God that for some of you, you've had a friend sitting in the church that came to you and said, I noticed you got a problem. Some of you have such a stiff neck that you won't let people do that. Some of you have learned a little trick. How you come in a little late and get out a little quick and nobody can get to you. That's bad. Going to hurt yourself that way. Get in the middle of this thing. Give us a chance at you. We love you. We want to help you. We're the instruments of Christ as you are to us. Don't build yourself a little cocoon and shut those out who can help you the most. But we have yet to cover the completely all the elements of the letter. The final concern is Christ's gracious overture. In verse 20, the Lord says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now first notice something. The location of Christ. Where is he? He is outside. What a sorry picture. To a church. Jesus has to introduce himself as standing outside knocking he ought to be inside that's the normal posture and relationship between Christ and his church he ought to be inside what's Christ doing outside knocking to get in this church is in deep trouble this church is almost utterly gone all they have left is a knock on the outside but see it's imperative that they act quickly. You know what it's like when somebody rings your phone and you've been waiting for a phone call. You don't sit there on the couch and the phone rings and you sit there. And the phone rings a couple more times you sit there. You've been waiting for this call, by the way. It's the call that's going to confirm whether the IRS check is really in the mail. And you lounge around through eight, nine phone ringy dingies. And it stops ringing, and you, oh, should have got to go. That's not the way you are, is, is it? Most of us, we don't need to know it's IRS. We, if the phone rings, is somebody going to talk to us? We're going to run. We're so lonely. We're so insecure. We have phone. Somebody to talk to. And off we go. We're so scared they're going to hang up before we get there. I'm not describing something not typical of normal folks. I hurt my back running to the phone one time. <laughs> oh, that's true. Now look at the Lord here. I'm knocking at the door. Now if you're in the house and you're not, it's not Halloween and you're hoping nobody comes. 
It's a normal day, and somebody knocks on the door. You do not sit there and assume that they're going to stay. A knock means there's a temporary opportunity to get, let somebody in, and it's not going to last very long. They've come to see if you're home. If there's no answer, they're going to leave. People don't stand outside your door all day knocking. You ever know anybody to do that? That's the picture. Christ is where he ought not be on the outside and is knocking to see if anybody's home. Get up and get to the door. That's what he means when he says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He's not saying, now I've got a few things that concerns you about the church. You're not perfect. Of course, nobody is. That's not the posture. The Lord is saying, behold where I am and what I'm doing. And you make the hastiest run to this door or your days are over. There is within the sound of my voice the heart that at this moment has no intention of heeding what I'm saying. May God have mercy on your self-complacent, arrogant soul. Jesus Christ is not indwelling you. He doesn't live with you. You have no fellowship with him. He doesn't sup with you. You know him not. Your life is not characterized by heartfelt prayer. By the love of his Bible. By the love of the church. Not the edifice, but the people of God who love Jesus and the Bible. That's not you. And he's knocking on the door. In this sermon, he's knocking on the door. In my Bible, in the same chapter where he offers the wonderful invitation to buy without money, says, Call you upon the Lord while he's near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that imply? He's not always going to be near. And there will come a time you can't find him. Why did you come in here tonight? You may have had some plans. You may have meant it for evil. Maybe just for curiosity. I'll tell you why God brought you in here. To give you a chance. To hear the truth about your soul and the remedy for its condition. And to flee to Christ before it's too late. Open up, he says, and I will come in and sup with you and you with me. Not only does he say get to the door, he promises that if you do, he will come in. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The reason you're not saved is you've not called. You've not come. Oh, who among us? Has Christ outside the realm of his affections and life? Who longs to know Christ? To know his love? To experience his nearness, his warmth, his fragrance? Open the door. He will come in. And you'll wish that you could stand here and preach it in my place. But brethren, though it's late... I'm going to make one other word. It's a word about Calvinism. Roman Revelation 3.20 is often quoted in defense of the position of free will. Here's Christ standing outside the door. He can't come in unless you let him in. It's all up to you. And 
you know, it's a, salvation is sort of an offer and an invitation, but all the rest is up to the sinner. Brethren, that's not the picture here. This is not a picture of poor Jesus wringing his hands anxiously and nervously outside the door hoping to get a response. This is a picture of God's open invitation to sinners to welcome him. This is a gracious overture of a God who has no reason to be gracious to us, who has no ground of it other than that's the way he is. This is not here focusing upon what goes on in the sinner's heart, but what's going on at the threshold. Other texts teach us what God must do and what God does do inside this house to secure the sinner's willingness to open the door. But this text is speaking of the door of repentance and faith exercised by man, but it's a door opened only by men in whom the Spirit of God works. But you see, the main design here may be to shock the Laodicean church into recognizing that with all their riches inside, Christ is outside. This is not a statement about man's free will as much as a statement of Christ's free offer to stubborn, proud, and complacent professors of religion. And he says to the overcomer, I'll give to him to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Don't get it mixed up here and say, well, he's knocking. I'll be back next week. I'm telling you, be zealous and repent. God help you not to take these words lightly because they come from a person you don't know with an accent that you don't like in a church you're not familiar with. These are the words of Christ. Let me draw it to quick application. Just two words. Brethren in this church, let us labor to be sweet to the taste of Christ. Quick to repent of every newly revealed sin. Diligent and humble to receive every expression of chastening from our Lord. Not resistant or despising of his chastening. May we never be a church outside of whose doors Christ stands knocking. Or upon whose doors he has written Ichabod. May we be a church throbbing with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, invigorating our worship, enabling and ennobling our service, filling us with joy and peace in believing. May God help us to be that kind of church. Let everyone in this place understand that if you're a member of this church, you share a duty, an equal duty with the rest of us to labor, to be pleasing to the taste of Christ. Is there a member of this church who's nauseating the Lord tonight? You don't love us. You're so self-centered. You don't think of anybody but yourself. You haven't done a lick of serving this church since you've been here. But you're a member. And you pass that off as a public testimony to your accessibility and acceptability to God. I trust the Lord would not have to shock you by standing outside to get in. God help us. But in the second place, if you may be among us tonight affiliated with one of the Laodicean churches of America, get out. You're not doing yourself any favors. 
don't be numbered among those whose hearts are strangers to the indwelling spirit of Christ. Repent of your unbelief in Christ. Turn utterly to him. Release your desperate grip on your idols of security in this world. And Christ will receive you. May God give help to us in hearing, heeding, and obeying his word. Let him that has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Our Father, these matters have been weighty. We are convinced that you have been with us and addressed our souls and thereby heightened our accountability. Now, O God of grace, give us mercies that we may take what we've heard and act upon them wisely for our eternal good. O Lord, not only do we pray that you would shake and shock those who came into this place strangers to grace, but that you may encourage and save them and make Jesus precious to them. Lord, all we can do is ask and tell them, you must give the increase. We rest our case with you and wait upon you thankful that at least as of tonight, there does seem to be a measure of truth among us. Lord, we would not be blind. We would not be self-deceived. And if we are, please show us. Receive our thanks for your precious word. Bind it to our souls for eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.